bad, bad addict. Um, every time I was able to get a loan, I was doing drugs. I've been in prison four times, twice in the state, twice in the feds. I was doing all this crazy stuff, cooking drugs and just staying high. God called me from a prison cell. I was a homeless drug addict, and my hope was found in a needle. I was eight months pregnant, homeless, um, living out of my van. You know, it wasn't freeway that saved me, it wasn't John Stroop that saved me, but God uses freeway in such a mighty way as a tool to reach these people. There's not a community or a county in America that doesn't have a drug problem. And the, the church has the answer and it's the gospel of Jesus Christ. Welcome to Freeway Ministries, One Broken Life. My name is John Stroop with my special guest, Andrew Ryder. Thanks for joining us today. Glad to be here. Freeway Ministries, ah! All right, one more time. We're gonna get it right this time. Okay. Welcome to Freeway Ministries, One Broken Life. My name is John Stroop with my special guest, Andrew Ryder. Thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having me. This is a production of Freeway Ministries. We explore the broken lives of individuals. Uh, you hear about the negative impact that drugs and crime uh, make on our community, but what you don't hear about is a positive impact one radically changed ex-drug addict or ex-criminal makes when, when Jesus gets a hold of their lives. Uh, and so today we're going to ex explore the broken life of Andrew Rotter, and uh, we're going to talk about what God has done in your life. and. Um, Part one will be kind of about the, the BC, the before Christ story of your life. And then the, 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 the second half will be what God has done since you you surrendered your life to Jesus Christ. Um, and so I'm excited to, to have you on, Andrew. You're a friend, a brother. I'm proud of you. Um, just remember when we're sharing today that there are people uh, that are going to listen to your story that, that may be on the other side of this thing. They may be... Um, in addiction or feeling hopeless and your story is going to impact them and there's moms and dads listening uh family members that that are struggling with someone in, in addiction and and they've given up or maybe they just don't know what to do to try to help them so your story is going to impact them too so thank you for coming and sharing your story today absolutely um a couple verses that we kind of i'd say theme verses really psalms 51 17 and, and God says, the sacrifices of God are a broken and contrite heart. And, and, and the sacrifices of a broken heart or a broken spirit, God will not despise. And so God uses brokenness, right? And then um, Philippians 1.12, Paul says, Brethren, I want you to know that the things that have happened to me, so things is things in the past, his testimony, all the bad and the good, you know, putting him in prison, God allowing those things to happen in Paul's life. He said, the things which have happened to me have actually turned out for the furtherance of the gospel. So what is Paul, Paul is saying is that <clears throat> the things that have happened to him have actually made the gospel go places that it had not been able to go before or had not gone before. And so that's what we're doing today. We're taking your story, and God is going to use that to proceed and take the gospel places that it may not have gone before in people's lives. And so just give us a... A brief few minutes 
here. What was your life like growing up as a kid? Um, so my life, I've known Jesus my whole life. I got a grandmother on my father's side that, like, one of the first things I ever remember learning how to do was pray before you go to bed, pray before you eat. And uh, But that was the only real good influence I had growing up. The rest of my life was... Uh, so my, you're telling me you surrendered to Jesus, to Jesus at a young age? Uh, no. Okay. I knew him, though. You knew about him? Yeah. Okay. And uh, well, I guess technically I did, because until I, until I was about 11, I, uh, I was full-blown church member, knew Jesus for real, loved him, knew about him, loved Sunday school, loved church, but that I, I lived a double life as a little kid because at home it wasn't nothing like that. At home it was drugs, alcohol parties, bad people, and uh, that continued and it never really stopped. So, so as a preteen up to when you're like 11 years old from childhood, you would have grandma on Sunday, and then you would go home, and you would have this influence for the rest of the six days of the week. Wednesday too. Wednesday too. Okay, mm -hmm. and so you had the you know you had the presence of uh, God, God's people around you, um, but there had there you know we I just want to be clear that there has to be a day when you come under conviction and you know you're a sinner in need of a savior and you surrender your life to Jesus. And um, so your your influence, right? You have the gospel around you. You you hear about the Lord from Grandma, and you go to church, and you love it. But then you have five other days a week. You have this toxic environment you live in. Absolutely. So what was that like? Um. I mean, at the time it was cool. It was good. It was nice. Is what I thought was normal. It's, that's how I grew up. It was. It wasn't anything out of the ordinary. I never. I never thought it was bad. I thought it was good. You so, thought it was normal, mm -hmm. a normality. Yep. Because I thought like life outside of church was that, instead of what it should be. I thought you had church and the people that followed, and I, everybody else. That's that's what was normal. None of the people in my in my early childhood were bad. I didn't get abused. I got whooped. I got you know what I mean. But I never got like. I didn't see the the truly evil side of what was going on. Yeah. So, when did your drug use start? Eleven. Eleven years old. Yeah. Tell us about that. All right. So, parents were gone. Mom and stepdad were gone. My sister threw a party, and uh, I tried cocaine, alcohol, and weed all in the first, like all in the same night. So you're eleven years old, and you you're using narcotics, mm -hmm. using marijuana, and um, Cocaine. So marijuana wasn't the gateway drug. It was just like you did it and a cocaine at the same time. Yeah, matter of fact, I did cocaine first for it all. Okay. And so you're 11 years old using cocaine. What was your memory of that like? Rough. Rough. Beer is definitely an acquired taste. It was not good at 11, but I thought I had to, had to do it. thought it would make me cool, whatever you call it. And uh, everybody, all the dudes in my life did, so... And you seen you seen the, the the I call them masculine male figures like those domineering men that you look up to and stuff, um, the heroes that are, you know a lot of times they're just and I'm not trying to be mean about anybody in your life because I don't know them but for me they're just frail old men with nothing to show for their life now. Oh yeah. And and back then they were heroes, 
they were you looked up for, to them, and now they're living in shacks with nothing. And uh, the ones some of the, some of the ones that I looked up to, they don't you know I, I feel sorry for them now. And uh, but you 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 have those role models in your life, and so you've seen them do cocaine, in probably lots of different ways. And and so you said, well, I'm going to be like them, and and you you start trying to use cocaine at 11 years old. It's crazy. So uh, let's talk about what brought you to your place of brokenness, Andrew, to where you were where you were tired of going to jail. And let's just talk about that history. So you're 11 years old. You're using narcotics. Um, so what happens? Like, tell me what happened. Okay, so about the same time I started using, like a uh, – don't get me wrong, whenever I first started, it wasn't an all-the-time thing. It was whenever I could get my hands on it, and that just progressed into by the time I was a teenager, it's like what I lived for. It's what I woke up to do. It's what I did the whole time I was awake. It's, it's, what, I, it's what I lived for. Your life revolved around it. Oh, yeah, for sure. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I stayed farm God for a long time. It was about that time I stopped. I, I started finding excuses not to go to church. I wanted to go hang out with friends. I wanted to do this, and started skipping school, I started doing all the negative things that come with something revolve around, it revolved, my life revolved around something negative, so negative consequences came out of it. And uh, so leading up to that, leading up to what broke me? I mean, yeah, so you're a teenager, you're, you're making bad choices, you're drinking and drugging, what happens? Let's talk about it. All right, so, ooh, how old was I? So before I even made it to actual high school, I, I caught a felony. I got caught with uh, Vivance, like a speed pills for ADHD. I got caught with it in ninth grade, so I guess I would have been in high school, but it wasn't high school in Jeff City. It was Simonson. So ended up on probation, got off probation, did good on probation, but I never could stay out of juvenile. I never could do any of that. And, uh, again, I just thought it was normal. I don't know how many minor possessions of alcohol I got. I would – all the time, I don't know how many times me and my friends would wake up in the hospital, and it just continued to get worse. Though, and uh, I mean, you weren't cool unless you could do more drugs than the other person. You weren't cool unless who could do the most, pretty much. Yeah, I get it, man. That's yeah. that's that's my life. Uh, so let me just kind of, you're in the hospital many times because of too much drugs, too much alcohol. So you know your mom and dad. So who who was the dominant parental figure in your life? Mom. So what happens when you're in a hospital and you're a teenager, young adolescent, maybe twenties, teenagers, whatever, in that range, and you you wake up in the hospital? Where's what's mom saying? What's she doing? Depends on what time in life, because mom wasn't there for a while. Okay. Because uh, that's actually where I got the cocaine from. Is we stole it from my mom. Okay, and so who 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 meets you in the hospital? Who does who do, who do they call? Well, they would call mom. Grammy, the Grammy would devastate me whenever Grammy showed up, and she would always show up. She's the one that I've met. Mm-hmm. Okay, and then, Carolyn. Mm-hmm. Okay, exactly. And then I had a grandma on my mom's side. She was still alive back then too, and she was a real. She wasn't. Uh, uh, she didn't push religion on me. She didn't. She didn't express that kind of stuff. But she loved me very much, and she would always. She would show up, too. That was devastating as well. She passed away quite a few years ago. But back then, it was still Grandma, too. So so you're in the hospital numerous times. Don't remember what happened. 
and here you are, you wake up. Uh, and so where did that take you? Like, where did your lifestyle go? What happened? Because okay. remember, we're exploring your life. So yeah. people, you realize there's people watching or listening, and um, they don't know. You know, this isn't normal to them. This is like, oh, my gosh, you know. And so to me and you, it's normal. But uh, that lifestyle, and we know it's not right now, and it's not okay, and it's what we fight against and what, you know, we're missionaries to reach of those people group now. But to, to us, I understand, you understand, but they don't. Yeah, that was the easy part of it. That was the the nicer part of my past. That was whenever I was still young. And so it leads to... I mean, it, it led to selling drugs and being a violent offender. And, like, that doesn't happen overnight, but really it does. Because I was 18. I think I was 18. Anyway, I got pulled over one day, found out that I had two uh, sales cases, distribution cases that I had never heard about. And in between the time that I sold the drugs and the time that I actually got arrested for that, I got arrested with a modified firearm. And all that revolved around like exactly what was going on whenever I was a kid, whenever I was going to the hospital all the time, whenever I was doing all this, it progressed and it compounded on each other. It doesn't just progress like in a regular manner, like a linear manner. It gets worse and then that gets worse and then that gets worse and it literally compounds on each other until you really are selling drugs and pulling guns on people and stuff. I wanted to be a gangster my whole life. Whole life. Uh, when I was a little kid, like Scarface was my favorite movie. I wanted to be Tony Montana. And uh, I wanted to be a gangster, and then I became one. And uh, it's you just don't come back most of the time from that life. And so that's where it leads, right? I mean, <clears throat> you're looking up to these people in your life, and this is what they teach you. I tell people all the time that the devil is also a fisher of men, not just Jesus, like the devil, you know, and he has evangelists out there too. And they are on the corners hustling, selling dope and teaching yeah. people how to do that stuff. And so here you are, you're raised in this culture in every city and every county in America. There's people just like you who are, you know, stealing their mom's cocaine and, you know, committing crime. And doing all these things and being trained at a young age by whoever mom brings home from the bar. You know, that's who you look up to, that masculine male, because you're looking for a father figure. And uh, and you find that father figure in whoever your mom brings around. And that was my story. Mine's so, slightly different. Okay, let's hear it. So mine, I had a stepdad. They never got married, but he's the guy that raised me. He's, okay. That's where I got my work ethic, work ethic and stuff. And he wasn't never... He was always a drug addict. He was always an alcoholic. He, that's who whooped me. And it were, were, whoop is a light term for it. You know what I mean? And uh, so I didn't have to worry about the constant changing male figures. But none of my male figures were positive. Like I said, he taught me to brush my teeth. He taught me to drink milk with dinner. He taught me how to work real hard. Taught me the meaning of money and stuff. But he also taught me to uh, beat your kids and be mean and come home drunk and do all this other crazy stuff too. And yeah, So... You're a young man. You start getting in trouble with the law. You got two sales cases and a firearm charge. So how much time have you done in the in the Department of Corrections, State of Missouri? Oh, State of Missouri or altogether? Altogether. 
About 10 years, a little bit shy. How old are you? 32. So you're 32 years old, and you've done 10 years as an adult in prison. Mm -hmm. So how many times have you been to prison? Four. Four times. So you mean you've been out four times, mm -hmm. right? So this is your fourth time out. It is. And so let's... So... So you're in prison, you, you go you go to prison, you get out, you reoffend. You go to prison, you get out, you reoffend. So before I ask you this question, I want to ask you one other question. Who did you look up to? Who what did you want to be when you grew up? Gangster. For sure. Yeah. You know, I wanted to be that guy that had whatever I wanted. I wanted the most drugs, I wanted the most money, I wanted all the women, the fast life, the people leaving me alone, the people Yeah. So what was your plan when you went to prison every time besides this last time? What was your plan? Like, what was your exit strategy? Didn't have one. I was going there, be stuck, have as much fun as I could. In prison? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Get as high as I could. Work out. I work out every time, no matter what. As soon as I, as soon as I go to jail, I work out. That has nothing to do with the fact that I'm not doing good. So you're getting high, making connections. Gang affiliated? Nope. Nope. So you get out of prison. So what's it like when you get out of prison? When the 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 other three times, what was it like for you? Oh, so trying to get high again. It was never. There's not really a missed beat there. It's always try to get high. Like whenever I say my life revolved around it, that's that's just true. Like yeah, I want to go see my family, but we got to stop. We gotta. You got to bring the dope with you. That way I can go see my family, and I just got to do a little bit. That way they don't know that I'm all twacked out. But yeah, every so, time. You're getting high. How how long did did it take for you to to use drugs after you got out of prison? Okay, so usually it was either in the parking lot or no, that's it. That's it. Like they really do bring them with you. You know what I'm saying? And then one time, longest I ever was sober after being released is I drove from Bowling Green, Missouri, to Tipton, Missouri. However long that took, and then whenever I got there, I got high. So that was the longest until now. So, what was the relationship with your mom and your dad growing up? Um, me and my mom have always been real close. Even whenever she was absent for periods of time, I was always real close. And, like, she would always show up. Don't get, you know what I mean? She was always, don't ever let my mom hear I'm in the hospital, she'll show up. But it was always... I'm not really listening to what she's saying because she's doing the same thing we're doing. You know what I mean? She's always provided a place for us to rest our head. We might not want it to be there. It might not be a good place, but there's always a place to rest my head. And uh, that's not defending her or anything. It's just letting you know who she was. Way different now. She found God, and she lives all the way different now too. Uh, my father couldn't even tell you where he's at right now. Um, I've known him my whole life. I definitely know who he is. I'm definitely close to my father too. But we have a we have a very weird relationship. I don't uh I don't I don't know how to explain the relationship with me and my dad. I love my dad to death, but he's not a he's a very good friend. Uh you don't hear many bad things about him. Everybody loves him, but he's not a good father at all. Yeah. Well, I know it's not easy saying that, you know, because you feel sorry for, you know, you love you don't wanna you don't want to bring shame to your family, and and I get it, but um, but I appreciate you sharing that. I know it's not Absolutely. easy, um, and that has a lot to do with the person you become. 
you know, uh, the toughest guys I've ever met in prison were little boys looking for daddies. Yeah. And, and you know, that that may make an, an inmate want to knock my teeth out hearing me say that, but it's true. I've looked for father figures in men my whole life, and uh, and I look for a purpose, and I look for an identity in those things. And I would have died for some of these guys, and I put my life at, ri- at risk for them and uh, for nothing, Absolutely. you know, just because I had that longing in my heart. Um, so how did, how did you deal with addiction? So as you, did you want to stop? I mean, uh, so you're, you're, you're just now barely, how old are you? 32. 32. So you're, whenever I, I got saved, uh, I was 30 years old and I was in, I was in Fulton prison and, uh, and I got out of prison. I was 32 and, um, and that's when I started over with nothing. So you got your head of me, man. And, uh, but before I would say I wanted to get stopped, like, you know, um, I'd want to quit getting high because for me, um, everybody I loved was dead or in prison and, and I was in my twenties homeless for 10 years and I just didn't care. I had a car. I just left it parked one day and never went back to get it. You know, uh, I didn't give a crap. I didn't want to live. I had like a couple grand. I bought everybody Christmas presents and then went homeless and left and, and, and just wandered the streets, you know, because I had no hope. And uh, I, I would say I wanted to quit. Man, I can't tell you how many days I did in jail in, in the old Cole County Jail in Jeff City, the old one. That's wow. where I did all my time. <laughs> uh, they did When they did the pardon paperwork, uh, Beth looked up all the – she had to look up the hours she could find that I did in jail, and it was like, I don't know, 400 days or something you know uh just off and on run never show up to court and i would go in there and read the bible and say i was a christian and then i'd get out and just go right back to it uh so for you did you want to quit all those times you kept getting out did you want to stop um not all the times so i mean all the way up until Time before last, maybe. I look. I embraced it. I thrived in that life. I loved that life. I loved getting high. I didn't do it to numb myself or to hide from my. I didn't do it for now. I did it because I liked it. I liked being high. I liked the fun. That's, that's what I like to do. So I never wanted to quit. Really thought it was fun. Yeah, thought it was very true. Uh, a couple times ago, whenever I started realizing that like your family does your time with you and it takes it tears everybody down right so whenever i realized that i mean there's no there's no there's no glory in being tough there's no there's no that's not cool to go to prison so many times it's not cool to have like a laundry list of felonies none of that's cool all that is is living your life in a box and like de- depriving your family of you didn't no no, that's whenever I started wanting to change. And then, like, I would say I want to change, and then I wouldn't. I'd be in prison trying to get drugs brought in. I'd be in prison trying to buy them all up. I'd get out, and I'd go right back to what I was doing. And in retrospect, prison ain't bad, right? Whenever you're doing it, it sucks. Whenever you get out and you look back, you're like, oh, okay, well, whatever. Okay, so there comes a point you're in prison, and... uh and you're like, I'm done. Before we get to that point, 
I mean, there's a few questions I want to ask you. What grade in school did you finish? Well, I finished eighth grade, and I want to say I went through ninth grade, but whenever, because whenever I was going through school, it was that no kid left behind. Like, you couldn't really be held back. There was a period of time where, like, they had to put you forward no matter what. But I have half a credit in high school. Okay. So, so uh, when did you realize your life was out of control? First time I got out of prison. I got released from Florida, actually, and got up here. They extradited me back up here, and they let me out. And I'm talking about like three and a half weeks later. Just uh, that, that, that was terrible. That was a terrible time. I lost myself completely engulfed in everything. Didn't care about nothing. Didn't care about life, death, kids, family, nothing. Yeah. So uh, did you ever try to get sober on your own? No. Never? No. Okay, it's first time. Most people say yes, <laughs> and then they tell me how that didn't work. How many treatment centers have you been through? Uh, so I did a year-long treatment at Maryville in a sentence, in one of my three-year sentences. Institutional prison treatment. Yeah, I've never been to – I've never done any kind of rehabilitation or anything on the street ever, period, at all. And that was me. i never been to a treatment center either or did any kind of residential program on the street. I did my – institutional pre treatment in prison the cool thing about institutional treatment is you can't quit yeah <laughs> you can't quit prison you know and that's what i tell people all the time moms and dads or maybe a mom or dad listening today and you're worried that your kid's in jail i want to tell you jail's not such a bad place and the reason is you can't quit it yeah and uh the thing about jail is you don't hear about high-speed chases you don't hear about people getting shot for breaking in someone's house um jail generally is a place where you can eat sleep and rest you know, and um, and so, matter of fact, that's a uh, it's one of the most detrimental things that's ever come out of like the life of addiction is whenever my mom, I would go to jail, and she would say like it would calm her down because at least she knows that we're like me and my sister go to jail and she'd be like well at least I know you guys are safe I don't got to worry about getting that phone call in the middle of the night you guys dead, and uh, that'll that'll punch you in the chin. You know what I mean? That's a good old chin check for you. And if yeah. it ain't, then you got a real problem. So tell us about your darkest time. So if you just think back, uh, that time where you hit, like this is the this is the darkest point in my addiction, what would it be? Mm. Where did it take you? I don't know. Let Which me tell one? you mine, and then you can think about yours. So when I think of my darkest time, there was a there was a. Do you remember Charles and Angela? Mm -mm. Okay. Well, I'm not gonna say the last names, but Charles is dead now. I do know who you're talking about. Okay. That. And they lived in the projects. Had long red hair. Yep. Yeah. And they they, they had a, they had a trap house over in in the projects in Jeff City. All right. Over off of Lafayette Street. And uh, when I, I would go there, now I was I stunk so bad that you could smell me through my clothes. My you could smell my feet like like my shoes in your face for me just getting in the car with you. That's how bad I stunk. And uh, and I've got a complex with smelling good now because of that time. 
And so I always wear cologne. I always make, I'm the cleanest person in my house. And my wife will tell you that <laughs> is because I have a complex over that still to this day, I can still smell it. And, uh, and so I, I would go to their house. Now, now, mind you, you know, this is a dope shooting trap house in the hood. Okay. And, and they would make me go upstairs to the bathroom, take all my clothes off, put it in a trash bag, take a shower, put the trash bag on the front porch and give me clothes to wear before I could even use drugs or get high. And even if I had dope, that's how bad it was. That was my dark time. Like, creature of the night, uh, didn't care if I lived or died, no courage, straight up coward. That's what drugs did to me. So what about, what, what, what was your dark time? It was probably when I got out of Florida. Because like all the other times, I at least had inhibitions about everything I was doing. I might not have cared, but at least in the back of my mind, I'm like, this is wrong. Whenever I got out of Florida, I mean, I did not care. Just did not care at all. Yeah. So it would have been then. A lonely time. Yeah. Surrounded by people all alone. For sure. Last Saturday we talked about the ten lepers. Luke 17. And one said thank you. Yeah, the one came back. And he said it was a Samaritan. And uh, the Samaritans were uh, outcasts, racially and socially separated from the Jews. And he heals them all, but he tells them they have to go to the priest because the law said they had to go be examined lepers. They were all lepers. And, uh, and so they all turn, and when they turn, they get healed. And the leper comes back. And for me... The leper was the outcast of the outcast because he wasn't accepted at the priest at to the priest in the temple like the Jews were. He couldn't go to the inner court. He was a Samaritan, and so um, he was the worst of the worst, you know. And he turns back to Jesus, and he's—I can see him saying, "I don't have nowhere else to go but you," you know. I I don't have nowhere else to go. You're it, and. I've been out of prison since 2009, and I still don't have nowhere else to go but him, man. You know, I was the Samaritan, and the Samaritan leper, you know, the outcast of the outcast, the one that no one wanted around. And uh, misery loves company, brother. And, And those people, those lepers, would have never been together socially, but their misery brought them together. And that's what happens. That's a picture of the dope house, you know, the trap house. You got people in the dro- the dope house that would never be together except for their misery. For sure. You got the judge's son. You got the rich kid. You got the you got the guy from the hood. You got the ex drug dealer who used to be on top that now is a junkie. You know, you got the white girl. You got the you know there you throw, there's no telling who's going to be there in what background. They have nothing in common, but addiction, right? And so. Um, there's people that are listening right now, I guarantee it, and they're in their dark time, right? And so what, what, what advice would you give them? I mean, they're in their dark moment. There may be 
somebody who's who who just got out of Florida prison, <laughs> you know. And so, what would you say to that person? What would you say to the old old Andrew Rotter, who was listening today? I mean that. Uh, I mean, there's a way out. You're not stuck in it. It is not. It's not permanent. It's only permanent if you make it permanent. Like I always thought that that's what I wanted to do. That's what I. That's all I could do. That's all I was made for, and that's just not true. Like I don't believe in products of environments. Like yeah, your environment affects like the influences around you, but you're a product of your actions. You're a product of what you choose to do, especially after you grow up, to where, like, I would say stop justifying what you're doing. If you don't want to do it, don't do it. If you wanted to not do it, you wouldn't do it. We're selfish individuals, right? So you do what you want. So you have to change what you want. You have to do something different. And that's what I would tell somebody that's hopeless is that, like, you're only hopeless because you're letting yourself be hopeless. There is hope. Jesus Christ is hope. But if you don't know him, there's still ways to get out of the situation you're in. You need to clear your mind. You need to do all that. You need to stop. Surrender. Yeah. Surrender your life. For sure. And my prayer was, uh, Lord, use me like the dope used me. And give me a purpose. And I give my life to you like I did the drugs, you know. So that's a beautiful prayer to pray, to surrender your life to Jesus that way, you know. Did you ever think there was hope for you growing up in your addiction when you was in your dark moments in and out of prison? Did you ever think there was hope? No. I don't, so I knew I could. Uh, I knew I could. I knew I could turn to Jesus. I knew I, I knew I could do all that. I just never thought I would. Okay. Do you ever fear relapse? Of course, every day. Every single day. How long have you been clean and sober? Um, out of prison this time. So let me say April, April, May, June, July, August, September. Whew, I'll tell you what, that's like 17 months on the street sober. So really a year on top of that, though, because I went back for a year. So that's like 29 months sober. So since you've been an adult, have you ever been 29 months sober? I ain't never been 29 days sober. How does it feel? feels amazing, yeah. So you, your family, what do they think now? I mean, they're all tickled to death, proud as can be. That's what they all told me anyway, so. Your kids come serve with you? Yeah. What's that feel like? That's neat. That's neat. So I've been... And my kid, my oldest is 14, and uh, so I've been incarcerated most of their life. I've been a picture on a wall and a phone call, right? And uh, so now they literally get, like, they got to come sleep on my couch in my own apartment and ride around in my truck and, like, see, like, they've seen me. I've known my, my kids have known me. It's just that. I've never been good. I've never been a good influence. I've never been anything but high. Like, I can't even stay high sober long enough to, like, be a part of my kids' lives. I Because, yeah, and I would always. You were your dad. Oh, yeah. But now you're not. My dad was even better than I am because, like, at least dad would, like, have me out of his house and stuff like that. Yeah. I'd be the first to admit that. I was worse. And now you're turning a corner. And I don't want to go into your after Christ. I don't want to talk about. I don't want to steal the thunder of what God is doing today, but today you're clean and sober uh, for the first time as an adult yeah. out of prison. Mm -hmm. And um, you have your own place. 
Yeah, you have a ministry to serve in. You're in you're in Bible college. Um, you have a yeah. You, you oversee the children's ministry. I do. And and God is using you. Graduated the Freeway Ministry Discipleship Program. Um, and so we're gonna we're gonna talk we're gonna talk about that. We're gonna part two. We're gonna talk about what God is doing. We're gonna talk about the comeback story. So I want to thank you for sharing your heart, opening up your life, letting people in. Very welcome. Yeah. And so if you've enjoyed this uh, part one of Andrew's story, uh, this is a production of Freeway Ministry. One Broken Life is a production of Freeway Ministries. If you want to support what we do here, you can go to freeway-ministries.com and you can you can help us um, as we reach One Broken Life at a time. We're opening homes and, and planting ministries and supporting missionaries as they go start freeways at other places. And so I want to thank you guys for tuning in. If you like this, share it. Share it on your social media platform. Share it on um, whatever platform you have socially. And uh, let people know that there is hope. So we'll see you for part two. Don't miss that. Thank you, Andrew. Thank you. We'll see you later.